This is another kind of, uh, when people think of the Catholic Church, they think of the confessional booths and, and things like that. By it, the penitent, the person receiving the sacrament, is absolved of his or her sins by a confessor. The person hearing the confession and conferring the sacrament, typically a Catholic priest. Every Catholic is required to confess all his or her mortal or serious sins before receiving communion and at least once a year. A penitent need confess only sins committed since baptism or since his or her last confession. To make the sacrament valid, the confessor must be a priest and the penitent must be contrite and possess a firm purpose of amendment. In other words, you've got to be actually sorry for what you did. Sins inadvertently forgotten after a careful examination of of conscience are included in the absolution. Before granting absolution, the confessor, acting as the instrument of both God and the church, may admonish the sinner and he imposes a penance, a punishment usually consisting of prayers. The penitent is required to make restitution for injuries to others. Okay, I've got to move along. So that's penance. Uh, Extreme unction is also known as the sacrament of the anointing of the sick or last rites. Usually administered when the person was in grave danger of dying. That was common in past centuries, not so common anymore today. Holy orders is the sacrament by which bishops, priests, and other ministers of the church are ordained and receive the power and grace to perform their sacred duties. And confirmation. The Catholic Church considers it the second of the three sacraments of initiation, baptism being the first and communion the third. Confirmation is regarded as the perfection of baptism because as the introduction to the rite of confirmation states, quote, by the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with the special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend the faith by word and deed, unquote. So, the succession of grace from the apostles through the bishop to the confirmand is stressed. Again, that transmission of, of spare grace from Christ and from the apostles through the, the priest. Okay, transubstantiation. This is the idea during the Eucharist, uh, during uh, communion, that during the process, the bread and the wine is transmitted literally into the flesh of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. They believe that uh, as the priest administers the rite of the Eucharist, the rite of uh, the, the sacrament of Holy Communion, that the bread is literally transformed into flesh and the, the wine is literally transformed into blood. And um, again, there's no scriptural basis for this there is uh there is the idea of jesus saying that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no part of me uh there is that however uh we know that he was not speaking literally he was speaking figuratively okay and so um i don't think that the bible teaches cannibalism anywhere it certainly does not teach the imbibing of blood. In fact, it, it strictly prohibits the uh, imbibing or the eating of blood. That's reserved for God and God only. And so, uh, <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah. I'm going to move on. But again, as, as weird as that sounds to us, that's what they're taught their whole lives. And they simply accept that. Like we were taught things that we simply accept. Okay, indulgences. <coughs> the Catechism of the Catholic Church describes an indulgence as, quote, a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints, unquote. Okay, what that's saying is that because we have the spare grace, we can give it to you for a price. Okay, that's not how it started. It started with, again, a penance, uh, prayers, an action. You've got to go visit this temple or, or this, this church, or you need to go visit the relics of, of this saint, and this grace will be bestowed. Later on, certainly during the, uh, the Crusades, they needed money. They needed to raise money for these Crusades. And so uh, they started selling the indulgences. And they had people that were very good, uh, salesmen that would go around and they would sell these indulgences. And so, uh, in fact, it got so bad, that's one of the, th- one of the main uh, heresies that uh, Martin Luther was against. That's one thing that really uh, caused him to, moved him to, to uh, nail these 95 theses to the wall, to the door. <coughs> It had gotten pretty bad. And again, they're drawing on the, the, the uh, holdover grace from Jesus and from the apostles. Okay, relics. Uh, they believe in these sacred relics. Uh, they must not be worshipped, but they are uh, venerated. So, uh, the Catholic Church divides relics into three classes. A first-class relic is an item directly associated with the events of Christ's life or the physical remains of a saint. I think it's been said if we put all of the slivers of the cross together that's been sold, we'd have thousands of crosses. <clears throat> but, in any case, uh, that's what's considered a first-class relic. Second-class relic is an item that the saint owned or frequently used. For example, a crucifix, a rosary, a book, etc. that they used a lot. A third-class relic would be any object that is touched to a first- or second-class relic. And again, these relics are uh, they're not worshipped, but they are venerated. Supposedly, uh, meditating on the, the acts of this particular saint will stir us to greater acts of service ourselves. And that's not untrue. Uh, you know, when, that's one reason I like reading history, is because um, people who have acted in the past, especially uh, our, our recent Pentecostal history, I read about things that uh, um, G.T. Haywood did. I read about things that G.A. Mangan did. And it stirs something in me to, well, if God can use them that way, God can use me that way. But I don't, I don't, I don't worship the man. I don't think that he is, uh, you know, half deity or anything like that. They're men, they're women, just like you and I are. But that's, that's what stirs me to greater action is understanding that they are just like me. They had the same struggles. They had the same, uh, faced the same situations. They got hungry. They got frustrated. 
They got uh, they felt pain when they hit their thumb with a hammer, just like I do. But they overcame all of that, and God used them mightily. So that gives me hope. That ought to give us hope. And, and in that sense, I think that's, that's good to look at uh, saints that have went before us and try to emulate them as far as they followed Christ. But to venerate them and to, to hold them as something that we can never attain to. God, God made these, these saints into something that you and I just have no hope of attaining to. It's simply not true. Again, when we stand before Jesus Christ, we stand on equal ground. There's the veneration of the saints they also subscribe to. Same thing. Now, talking to someone. I didn't get into the... uh, History of the nuns. Oh, boy. Okay. Actually... We'll close that out next week. Let's all stand. We've got to take a break.